living in this horrific age of sliding reaction. You've got fascist ideas becoming more mainstream. And so what does the athlete do in that situation? Well, the athlete has to resist. But what's the end goal of that resistance? When you actually engage with sports, you're actually helping build the infrastructure and capacity of a society. Because to me, that's what a world worth living in is all about. The ability where we're free to work, where we're free to play, where we're free to love, and our ability to do something successfully is not how we define ourselves, but our ability to actually capture joy is how we measure our lives. Thank you. That's Dave Zirin, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Dave Zirin on sports and resistance to fascism. Many believe that sports are apolitical and neutral, but it isn't. Sports are intricately enmeshed within the larger societal context. Some athletes speak out. Muhammad Ali in 1967, with the United States at war in Vietnam, refused to be inducted into the military, saying, I ain't got no quarrel with those Viet Cong. He was widely condemned. He lost at the peak of his career, his world championship crowned, and was banned from boxing for three years. More recently, NBA superstar LeBron James was told by Laura Ingram of Fox to shut up and dribble and not talk about politics. James observed, the best thing she did was help me create more awareness about social injustice. Another example was NFL quarterback Colin Kaepernick's simple act of taking a knee. It became a symbol of resistance to America's racial inequality. Our guest today is Dave Zirin. He's the award-winning sports editor of The Nation magazine. He's the author of many books, including What's My Name, Fool?, A People's History of Sports, and The Kaepernick Effect. He also hosts the Edge of Sports podcast. He spoke at the Socialism 2022 conference in Chicago in September. And now, Dave Zirin. There you go. So here we are at the Socialism conference, so obviously let's talk some sports. You know, it was... <laughs> Duh. Um, <laughs> It was C.L.R. James, the great Trinidadian Marxist and revolutionary. He wrote a brilliant book about cricket. I know nothing about cricket. I love this book. It's called Beyond a Boundary. And in its opening, he penned the following statement. He wrote, what do they know of cricket who only cricket know? And it's a beautiful line. What do they know of cricket who only cricket know? And to use less elegant language, what James is saying is that you need to have some sense of the real world if you're going to understand the sports world. And perhaps you need to understand the sports world to have a view and lens to understand the real world. So in the tradition of CLR James, we're not going to talk about sports until we talk about some context. I believe that we're living in a time of great crisis, great opportunity for the left, great global struggle. But primarily, I would argue, we're living in a time of profound, profound reaction and the growth of the authoritarian right. Um, in this country, we've got the Supreme Court from hell 
which has grabbed the steering wheel of this country and turned it hard to the right and I would argue has it headed straight off a cliff. Uh, the crushing of abortion rights, the deification of the gun, the elimination of, fear, of free and fair elections, and the smashing of the wall between church and state. I think it's left the majority of this country kind of reeling about what to do. And also a lot of people on the left reeling about what to do. And questioning about how do you function when you know, fascists, some of whom are intimately connected or in the Republican Party, are on the march. A couple hundred marched yesterday in Indianapolis. I mean, this is like nothing I've seen in my lifetime, the degree of confidence from the far right and, and the way it's connected to one of our ruling parties. And we need to really reckon with that. I mean, when even Joe Biden calls this iteration of the GOP semi-fascist, then you know that we're in a moment. And I'm sorry, I gotta stop my talk. I mean, what the hell, Joe? What's a semi-fascist? I'm sorry. I mean, that, that to me is like saying my dog semi-barked. It's like it either barks or it doesn't. No such thing as a semi-fascist. I mean, so, so these are troubled times that raise a ton of questions about how to organize, and, but they also raise questions about what's the ethical role of the athlete in a period such as this. How do you just play while the world burns? How do you, in effect, play through fire? And it's a critical question, not only because sports has proven itself to be an important site of resistance over the last decade, uh, but also because sporting spectacle will undoubtedly be used to distract a populace away from the reality of a society sliding into autocracy and environmental decay. But this is nothing new, and maybe that's the first thing to say to give us a sense of, of confidence, is that sports has been a feature of autocratic societies, of course, since the days of ancient Rome, when the satirical poet uh, Juventus wrote of a society drunk on what he called panem et circensis. People know what that means? Bread and circuses, that's right. And what a gift those all-consuming obsessions were to the, to the corrupt political class that could operate in shadows while the world cheered, eyes firmly in the other direction. Now, the 20th and 21st century makes ancient Rome look both modest and quaint. I mean, while bread for too many is in short supply, the circuses are everywhere and constant, 24 hours a day and in the palm of our hands. But weapons of mass distraction, everywhere. But the most popular and pernicious circuses are the mega events, particularly the Olympics and the World Cup, that have been used by murderous autocracies repeatedly to sp smash dissent at home and project a shiny, happy face abroad. Now, the most infamous example of this historically is the 1936 Olympics in Hitler's Berlin, which was basically staged as a two-week commercial for the Nazi party. I don't know if folks knew this, but you know most of the pomp and circumstance that we associate with the Olympics, like the running of the torch, for example, or when countries march in country by country into the main Olympic stadium, you know, stuff that's a staple of NBC's coverage, that comes from the mind of Joseph Goebbels, uh, the, the 1930s propaganda leader and 40s propaganda leader of Nazi Germany, and it was thought of and conceived for the 1936 Olympics. But it's not just the Olympics that create these scenarios. I mean, the most famous boxing match in the 20th century was probably the rumble in the jungle between Muhammad Ali and George Foreman, which was in a country then known as Zaire, now the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Zaire was run by a bloody dictator and a CIA asset named Mobutu Sese Seko, who used this boxing match as a distraction to torture and kill dissidents to consolidate power. 
Um, or we could look at the 1978 World Cup in Argentina, where just a few streets away from the main stadium, the military junta's torture center was going at full tilt, killing a generation of resistance fighters while the world looked in the other direction. And it's not like this has only been revealed in later years, what happened in Argentina. I mean, back then, groups like Amnesty International, they held protests in front of embassies that included slogans like, yes to football, no to torture. But the media ignored it, and by June 1978, the military was at its strongest, and it had, thanks to FIFA, the world governing soccer body, a World Cup to thank. Now, I'm talking a lot about other countries, but make no mistake, the United States through the last century has taken this practice of using sports propaganda to obscure reality, and they have honed it to a fine art. I mean, when Jesse Owens, who was a black man, uh, won four gold medals at Hitler's 1936 Olympics, you had newspapers in the United States crowing about this, saying, this proves we're not a racist society in 1936. This proved, Jesse Owens' victories prove we're not a racist society, unlike Nazi Germany, which believes in a master race. I mean, th these are Washington Post, New York Times columns. Like, we are not racist because of Jesse Owens. And this, of course, demanded willful ignorance of the ravages of Jim Crow, white terrorism, not to mention ignorance of the fact that Nazi ideology had been developed by studying the United States. You know, and if you, if you get to read the book, Hitler's American Model, the United States and the Making of Nazi Race Law, that one is an absolute eye-opener. Uh, and the media did the same thing when Jackie Robinson debuted in 1947. I mean, Jackie's heroics on the field meant that the sins of racism were receding in the past. You know, this is before the Civil Rights Movement. They're saying in 1947, there's no more racism. The first time, at least according to my own research, that I see the words post-racial have to do with Jackie Robinson in the late 1940s, not some imaginary Obama presidency or whatever. Like this was about using sports to cover up the crimes of racism, which Jackie Robinson knew all too well, which is why after his playing career, he became a barnstorming speaker for civil rights. And actually, it's kind of interesting, the, uh, he was the number one most requested speaker by southern branches of the NAACP. The number two most requested speaker was someone you might have heard of named Martin Luther King. And I always thought that was funny, like you imagine people in an organizing meeting being like, all right, can we get Jackie Robinson? No. All right, we'll get Dr. King. Oh my God, I can't believe <laughs> we gotta get Dr. King here. Jackie's busy, what are you gonna do? And his big line at the end of these speeches was, if I had to choose between the Baseball Hall of Fame and full citizenship for my people, I would choose full citizenship time and again, which is right on. Um, and by the way, back then, in the movement, when people use the word citizenship, it's not the way it's used today as a way to oftentimes divide people from the global south, from the United States, and who's undocumented and all that. Citizenship was used as a, as a way to say, you must recognize our humanity. So that was a powerful thing to say, I want full citizenship for all my people. Now, today, this use of, of sports as a sort of propagandistic fig leaf is done so often, it has its own name that you might be familiar with, sports washing. How many people are familiar with that term? I've heard it before, sports washing. Uh, 2022 in the mainstream media has in fact been called the year of sports washing. So for the media, seeing 2022 in such a matter in the world of sports, it's actually a very neat and tidy narrative because 2022 has been chock full of sports washing. Um, here's how the argument goes. 
Uh, sports can be understood by looking at three countries, basically, in 2022. China, Saudi Arabia, and Qatar. Uh, autocracies, all of them. And you know, China, of course, hosted the Winter Olympics while disappearing their own athletes in January uh, for speaking out a turn. Tennis star Peng Shuai took to uh, social media to speak about her sexual assault. She was disappeared for doing so. Um, then you have Saudi Arabia, which launched the Live Golf Tour. People have heard of that, playing golfers like Phil Mickelson, nine figures to abandon the Professional Golfers Association in order to basically sporswash the bloody hands of the House of Saud. And a quick word on the Live Tour. I don't want to shock anybody here, but golfers are not the most political bunch when you look at the athlete uh, world out there. And M Mickelson was pressed by the mainstream media about like, how can you go with this live tour? You know, wh what are you doing? And I wanna read you what he said, because it says so much. He said, Saudis are scary to get involved with. We know they killed the journalist Jamal Khashoggi and have a horrible record on human rights. They execute people over there for being gay. Knowing all of this, why would I even consider it? because this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to reshape the PGA Tour. Now, Phil Mickelson then apologized after this quote went public, but he didn't apologize to Saudi Arabia's victims. He apologized to the Saudi royal family. Um, and this is all a huge deal for Saudi Arabia because, you know, it, they have this perspective about the 2030s where they're gonna host both the World Cup and the Olympics as part of their Vision 2030 plan to project itself into the world. And lastly, we have Qatar. Uh, in a few months, Qatar will be hosting the World Cup, which is expected to bring an avalanche of positive coverage to a petro-dictatorship run by the Altani family, uh, even though quite literally thousands of migrant workers, many of them from one of the poorest countries on earth, Bangladesh, uh, have died being brought in to work construction. They've died on the job. Dozens of them died actually building World Cup facilities uh, under horrific conditions. Uh, and so we're gonna be watching a World Cup, basically talk about playing through fire, it's gonna be playing on blood. If we're not saying that loudly during the World Cup, we're doing a disservice to all the workers who died. Now, these sports spectacles, these circuses, are in fact political events aimed at cleansing regimes that by all moral rights should be shunned. But as comfortable as it is to point out China, Saudi Arabia, and Qatar, which the mainstream media is doing, we have to see that sports washing is not just the province of autocrats. It is also common in the United States, uh, not just historically, as mentioned, but right now, preparations for the 2028 Los Angeles Olympics are going on, and unhoused people are being, are being herded up, either imprisoned or driven outside the city, um, be, having their personal possessions thrown away all for the purposes of building more stadiums uh, in Los Angeles and building more infrastructure for the Olympics. And this is just corporate welfare. This is a feeding, feeding frenzy that the poorest in Los Angeles are gonna suffer for. And lastly, a country that's always left out of the sports washing conversation uh, is Israel, uh, which regularly takes part in what they call sports diplomacy as they tour their athletes around the world, particularly using basketball, which I find particularly offensive because uh, basketball is awesome, but they use it to project an image of the country at odds with the reality of Palestinian apartheid. So sports washing is real and it's everywhere. It has an internal function to quash dissent at home and an external function uh, to project a scrubbed image abroad. 
But as we descend deeper into this age of reaction that we're living in, with sports brandished as kind of a crude, blunt tool against truth and political clarity, what is the ethical role of the athlete, if any? One thing first and foremost we need to understand is that athletes can play a critical role in times of resistance. And history is, of course, rich with examples of this. Uh, you know, we could talk about Muhammad Ali, Billie Jean King, Tommy Smith, John Carlos, Wyoming Atias, the great soccer star Socrates, who in 1982 stood up to the Brazilian dictatorship. But recent, that's, but that can feel like ancient history. Sometimes you talk about 1968, people think you're talking about 1868. So we need to talk about more recent examples of the way athletes have functioned under autocratic uh, circumstances. And I, I want to look at the Arab Spring over a decade ago as people rose up against autocratic political leaders and brutal monarchs. When this took place, prominent athletes, you didn't get this on ESPN, but prominent athletes took to the streets as orators, fighters, and even medics. Uh, the great Egyptian football player, maybe the greatest ever, a man named Mohamed Abu Treka, not only lent his support to the occupation of Tahir Square, but he actually played a role in mediating a peace between two of the soccer fan groups who are known as the Ultras, uh, the Zamalek and Alawi. Now these are groups who, you know, if you put them at the same meeting, they would, if they were both here right now, first of all, they would sit on opposite sides, and second of all, they'd be fighting right now. By the time I'm halfway through the talk, fists would be flying. Uh, Abu Treka actually organized a truce between these two dire enemies for the purposes of them forming a blockade around Tahir Square to keep out Mubarak's forces, uh, playing a, a shockingly progressive role in that fight. Or you look at a place like Bahrain during the Arab Spring, you know, more than 150 pro athletes were imprisoned during the Bahrain uprising. They have a ministry of sports in Bahrain, and they created lists of rebellious athletes and systematically imprisoned and tortured them in the name of sending a message to the entire population. This included famed national team soccer player, Mohamed Hubeil, and the most famous jiu-jitsu champion in the region, a man named Mohamed Mirsa. People who are fans of jiu-jitsu would, would have heard of this person. He was just released after nine years behind bars for his role in the uprising. Uh, or in Syria, you know, the national goalkeeper for their national team, Abdul Basset al-Sarut, he became a rebel commander in the fight against Assad. Uh, we've also seen Palestinian athletes who've been imprisoned or killed standing up to Israeli apartheid. We've seen LGBTQ athletes in places like Russia come out and risk imprisonment. And we've seen sit-ins on the pitch by athletes in Greece in the name of refugee rights. And there's a book I would recommend to folks, it's called Soccer Versus the State by Gabriel Kuhn, K-U-H-N, which catalogs much of this in the international sphere. We're also beginning to see what such an athletic resistance could look like in the United States as we um, endure this slide towards uh, attempted autocracy, I'll call it. Uh, here in recent years, we've seen athletes ride the wave of the BLM movement and be political in ways unseen since the 1970s, and that's great. But the question we need to monitor is whether we'll see a similar commitment to being what they call an athlete activist during this age of reaction. I mean, we all remember 2016 when Colin Kaepernick took a knee, and, but we also have to remember this was six years ago at this point. You know, that's a political lifetime. And it's time to see if a new generation is going to step up and show what they've learned. And there are already signs of people stepping up. Uh, WNBA MVP Brianna Stewart has stood strongly for abortion rights in the aftermath of Dobbs. Uh, wearing shirts, speaking to the press, uh, mentioning, talking about it on social media. 
uh, like immediately after the Dobbs decision went down. Uh, Cincinnati Bengals Super Bowl quarterback Joe Burrow uh, has spent his young career, first of all, calling out poverty, which he did on draft night, uh, poverty in the United States, which, you ne which never gets talked about, uh, and hunger in the United States. And then after Dobbs, he put out a long statement about why he supports abortion rights. And then there's the iconic soccer hero, Megan Rapinoe, who has displayed in the recent months an incredible solidarity with transgender people uh, and has earned hatred from multiple political corners. And this is utterly vital, of course, as trans athletes have proven to be a central target of fascists and their friends in the GOP. In addition to this, there's a labor element to this, too. And we've been talking about labor restiveness in the United States all weekend. Uh, minor league baseball players, and people heard about this, who, you know, the average major league salary is about $4.4 million a year. You know, for minor leaguers, it's between five grand and 14,000. That's how much they make in a year. And they've been organizing grassroots style independently for years to try to get the Major League Baseball Players Association to organize them. And they finally won that this past week, uh, which is very exciting. And yeah, that's worth applause. I mean, and they use social media brilliantly, like showing what a minor league meal looks like on social and people being <laughs> repulsed and nauseous. Um, and then there's Brittany Griner, who I'd be remiss doing a talk like this without mentioning. Much to say about Brittany Griner. Uh, if you don't know who Brittany Griner is, I'm going to guess you're not in this room right now. Um, I mean, Brittany Griner is, is more than just a hoops superstar. I mean, she's a, a black, queer, non-gender conforming uh, hoops god who is facing nine years uh, in a Russian prison, has been convicted of nine years in a Russian prison, uh, facing five of those years probably in a labor camp. Uh, it, it's absolutely disgusting. But one of the things that you've seen is after an initial period where there was such quiet in the United States about her imprisonment, which I thought was a terrible mistake as people around the WNBA and people who love Brittany Griner were quiet because the State Department told them to be. And they said, we'll handle this behind closed doors. You don't need to raise any sort of outcry or anything like that. And finally, Brittany Griner's wife, Sherelle, was just like, enough is enough. Being silenced is getting us nowhere. And she put out the word, and the WNBA is just like, and their allies have just exploded in, why is the life of a black queer woman held in such low esteem by the Biden administration that they're not doing everything in their power to bring her home? And, and what's particularly important about that is because one could imagine in a different world, and frankly, if it was a different athlete, let's call it Tom Brady, for example, not to pile on Tom Brady, but if it was Tom Brady who was being held hostage, I mean, you could imagine that being used to beat the drums of war and the U.S. actually intervening in Russia militarily to free Tom Brady. Um, in this case, I think, first of all, what's been exposed is, first of all, the incredible sexism in the sports industry and, and racism and not holding up Brittany Griner's name at every opportunity. But what's also been so interesting is the way the focus of the athlete activists of the WNBA has been on Biden, not on Putin. And has been on get, you, know, you turn to your own country and you say, are you going to get this done or not? How much do you value? this life. And so I don't know what's going to happen going forward with Brittany Griner, but I do know there's at least more hope now for a prisoner exchange than there was when we were exercising silence um, in the face of her plight. 
Um, you know, ap athletes can also openly refuse to be a part of sports washing. One example of this, and this is really powerful, it's like saying the emperor has no clothes. Uh, one example of this is Mahmoud Sarsak, who was a Palestinian soccer player who lost one third of his body weight after being wrongly imprisoned. He went on a hunger strike. Uh, he was freed after an international outcry. And when he got out, um, a, a high up, it was, it was revealed, like he did a lot of interviews and he talked about how you know, his soccer, player, soccer career might be over because of the physical strain of imprisonment. And he, say, he said something about his dream is to watch Barcelona. You know, that was his squad. He said, if I can see Barca, then maybe that'll make me feel better. And uh, one of the higher ups at Barca invited him to watch a match alongside a man named Jalad Shalit, uh, who was an Israeli soldier who had just been freed in a hostage situation. It was going to be Sarsak and Shalit together, a sports washing sign of peace, you know, watching the game together. And Sarsak refused to go to the match. And he said, the invitation to Jalad Shalit suggests an equivalence between the Zionist executioner and the Palestinian victim. And that means I cannot attend. Um, and yes, these kinds of actions come with their own kind of risk. I mean, we're not Bahrain yet in the United States with athletes being targeted and systematically imprisoned. But pro sports careers are remarkably short, and athletes very disproportionately come from poor backgrounds. And when a player steps out of line, like a Colin Kaepernick, they can pay for it with their careers. Uh, there are also, though, some of the very few people from impoverished backgrounds, very few people who are black and brown, who are actually granted a microphone in this society, which is why what they do with that microphone is so ruthlessly policed, why you get people saying shut up and dribble and things like that, is precisely because they're stepping out of that and actually reaching and influencing people who politicians in Washington could not hope to reach. And that's what makes them dangerous. So it's, but it's risky. But the age ahead will be defined by risk, not just for athletes, but for all of us. And just as the Arab Spring created a context of struggle, resistance, and revolution that inspired athletes to risk it all, we need to understand that if we want to see athletes struggle in the streets and use their mighty platforms to amplify the struggle, we first need the struggle itself. Athletes are not going to do it for us. You know, Muhammad Ali did not come down from Planet Awesome to change our lives and change our minds about the Vietnam War. It was the crushing realities of white supremacy and the intervention of the entire era of the 1960s. Otherwise, you know, his dream was to be Cassius Clay, someone who brought the showmanship of professional wrestling into boxing. And when he was asked who his hero was in 1961, he didn't say Malcolm X, he said gorgeous George Wagner, who was a blonde pro wrestler at the time. That, that was his dream. I want to be like gorgeous George accepted. And that's why he was saying all this stuff about like, I'm so pretty, I can't be beat. It was a pro wrestling mindset, except the difference between gorgeous George, who was blonde, saying that stuff, and a black man in 1960 telling people how pretty he was, it actually had a radical effect and actually inspired, uh, and I'm the greatest, it inspired the Black is Beautiful movement when he talked about how pretty he was. And I mean that quite literally and directly. And also, I don't know why I'm telling Ali stories right now, but also um, when, uh, the, uh, when SNCC started the, the Lowndes County Democratic Party uh, in, in, during uh, the heights of, of, the civil, of the black freedom struggle, their symbol was a Black Panther. And it was the first time a Black Panther had been used in the political context. It predated the organization. And their symbol, their words, their slogan under the Black Panther was, we are the greatest. 
they took Ali's I am the greatest and they put a we on top of it. But the point of that is to say is that that only happened because of the intervention of mass struggle and mass organizations like SNCC doing the work on the ground. And so if we want to see more athletes use their hyper-exalted brought to you by Nike platform to speak out, that's the kind of intervention it's going to, going to take. You know, we're also going to have to be creative, and I'm going to start to wrap up here. Um, we, we can look to history for some answers. You know, the 19, in 1932, there was something called the Counter-Olympics that were held right here in Chicago as a racially integrated rebuke to the official nationalistic, almost all-white official Olympics taking place in Los Angeles. Like, they, led by the Communist Party, they just held something called the Counter-Olympics. And I think about 1936. This is so forgotten in history. This could have been such a historical game changer. Uh, Spanish socialists, communists, and anarchists, they were going to hold a People's Olympiad in Barcelona, worker-run Barcelona, in protest of Hitler's Olympics in Germany. So right down the road from Germany, it's like, that's the Nazi Olympics, we're the Socialist Olympics, you know, in Barcelona. We're the Workers' Olympics. It would have been genius counter-programming to Hitler's Nazi fest. And it also could have been an amazing and early display of anti-fascism on an international scale. Like, th think about like, that whole idea that people in the 1930s from the US who were fighting Franco, they were later, later labeled during McCarthyism as prematurely fascist. You know, this would have taken, anti-fascist, I'm sorry, prematurely anti-fascist. This would have taken that whole mindset and turned it on its head. But it didn't happen because Franco started the Spanish Civil War. Uh, so there are examples of what we can do uh, to not, that not only depends on athletes as amplifiers, but to use sports as an organizing tool against rising fascism. But this kind of creative use of sports as protest is not confined to the past. Uh, do you know the most watched sporting event in the world? I'm throwing this out there as a question. It's the Tour de France, both hugely popular in the Middle East and then, of course, all the people who go out and watch it as they go through town after town. Um, during the Tour de France this year, a French climate action group called Dernière Renovation blocked the race. And the organization said in a statement that it interrupted the 10th stage of the Tour de France to stop the mad race towards the annihilation of our society. So am I saying if the opportunity presents itself, we should be protesting at stadiums or doing direct action at stadiums or things like that? I'm, I'm certainly not not saying that. So, <laughs> So, just, so this is the, the actual wrap-up here. You know, I think about that phrase, panem et circensis, you know, bread and circuses. And you know, there really is nothing wrong with wanting food and wanting entertainment and wanting art. I mean, these are the things that make life worth living. They're what makes us human. Uh, and they are not, I would argue, def definitionally counterposed to struggle. Like bread and circuses don't mean an absence of struggle. But those pursuits must be accompanied by so much more. It's like, yes, we want bread. Yes, we can enjoy the circus. But we also, no matter how difficult, must always, always demand justice. And I leave you with the words of Howard Zinn, who said the words that to me fit with this idea of playing through fire. Howard Zinn wrote, we see that the smallest of acts multiplied by the millions can lead to the greatest movements of social change. And we don't have to wait for some grand utopian future. To live now as human beings should live in defiance of all that is bad around us is itself the greatest of victories. Or remember the simple words of Zinn student Alice Walker who said simply, resistance is the secret of joy. Uh, thank you very much.
You're listening to Dave Zirin on sports and resistance to fascism. This is Independent Alternative Radio. For copies of this program, call us at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that's 1-800-444-1977. Or go online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. We now continue with our program with audience questions. My question is, if you think that athletes have a general propensity to favor leftist causes, and what your thoughts are on the way that the right-wing media and political figures have used athletes to get behind causes like opposing the vaccine and, and supporting police and other things like that, in ways that, in, in my perception, sometimes mirror the way that it's used on the, on the left by figures like, like Muhammad Ali or Kaepernick. Mm-hmm. I wrote this book, The Kaepernick Effect, precisely to try to answer that question because this young generation is more diverse and less tolerant of intolerance than any generation in the history of time. That's who we have in the United States right now. That's, I'm, I want to be very clear, someone not from that generation, my role and our role, if you're me or older here, our, our job is not to, to, to you know, cross our arms and say, save us, Generation Z, save us. Our job is to figure out how to center them, center their struggle, and provide all the support we can materially, organizationally, politically, whatever we can do to help them in their capacity to lead struggles going forward, because they're doing it. They're absolutely doing it. And, um, and, what I, and when there is this struggle in the streets, like with the Black Lives Matter movement, what you've seen because of this generation, you saw them, athletes, take to their own football fields and take a knee, cheerleaders taking a knee, band members taking a knee, people taking a knee during the anthem, uh, soccer, softball, everything you could possibly imagine, it happened and it cohered itself into a kind of national movement that the mainstream media didn't notice or didn't understand, which is why I went after the book, because I was like, all these people are gonna get tossed in the memory hole, and all we're gonna remember is that Colin Kaepernick took a knee and some people were mad about it, you know? And it's like, no, there's something much, a much deeper process happening here. And I don't know about y'all, but like where, where I grew up, the idea that you would look to the high school sports team as the place for progressive change is kind of, abs- it would have been an absurdity at my high school. And it's a remarkable thing now, the way the wine is out of the bottle and of how you're an athlete, they're, they're a young athlete to be clear, there is this expectation that you have this platform and that you're gonna do something with it, particularly around issues of racism and police violence, but we're seeing particularly women athletes, particularly black women, expanding what it is that we need to be talking about on the streets. And particularly, you can't talk about this without talking about the incredible heroism right now of probably the smallest minority of athletes in the entire sports world. I'm talking about trans athletes uh, and their ability not only play, but play, there's no other way to put it, with a target on their back that's been put there by fascists and by the GOP. So it's there, it's self-active, it's not us coming from the outside, and it's something that's not gonna change, I would argue, no matter how bad things get at the youth level. Uh, Now the adults, when I talk to athletes, just so people know, like I talk to pro athletes, and they're all, they feel like Kaepernick was a million years ago. 
and they're wondering what's going to be the next thing. And they're all feeling corporate pressures. Remember how the NFL had end racism in the end zone? Guess what? It ain't there anymore. And they're getting that message very strongly. And I'll, I'll stop. I'm going on to, I want to hear from y'all. But that, that's just what I wanted to say is that like it's happening because there's a generation on the move. That said, I'm going to throw out a few things. You can pick anyone you want to uh -oh. talk about. One, the relationship of militarism to the NFL. Mm -hmm. Number two, the role of sportscasters in terms of speaking uh, truth to power. Number three is the Puma campaign. And there are some teams that are involved in that. The new uh, soccer team in Oakland uh, is coming around to calling for the, the boycott of, uh, of Puma because of being produced in occupied territories in Palestine. And the final thing is, you, you spoke on sports under socialism. Uh, and I think we still have to pose that, not just because of exemplary individual athletes, but what it means to collective activity. My question is like, in the MLB right now, there's like so few African-American players compared to like, you know, the NFL and like the NBA. Like why are there so few African-Americans like in the MLB? Yeah, that's my question. I was, I was 10 years old in 1955 when I started watching television. There was one minute of commercial every half hour. Mm. Now we're up to about 10 or 11, especially in sports, mm -hmm. as a way to be able to propagate the, you know, our master's voice, to be able to coerce us into buying the things that capitalism has for us to make profit mm -hmm. off of us. It now is interrupting the flow of games. It stops play, especially in basketball, increasingly more in football. And they're aiming now at, uh, at football, soccer. Is there something to say about that? Um, so one of the things I'm really curious about is, and you've kind of highlighted this on the global level, but I'm really curious about, um, I play basketball, pick up, I used to play, I was an athlete in high school and college, and I'm curious about, are there other routes of engaging the sports world, especially in the U.S. context, to make activism happen? Okay. It feels like often that, we rely on sports figures as influencers where we organize separately and then we pull them in to do something or make a lobby for them. Is there anything that's more grassroots where like we see athletes here in local level? I know the WNBA has been tremendously helpful with this, but they're at the WNBA. Is there anything on like a, like a younger scale or people who are actively athletes doing more change-based work that are much more tied to organizing in a more hand-in-hand -hand way, or is it simply this notion of organizers reaching out to athletes, athletes to lobby on behalf of a cause? That was great, Dave. Just a couple of questions. One is that uh, have the WNBA and the NBA Players Associations formally come out for Free Britney? Mm -hmm. And what does that mean for the AFL-CIO? The only reason they ask this is because getting something passed and going on record is a precondition for them doing something because I, I think that unless you have an international day of action, and I mean action, you know, not Facebook pictures, but you know, action, nothing's going to change. I mean, mm -hmm. I just think that we've learned that from Scottsboro to any other struggle in our lives. I had questions kind of more about like the role of schools and universities in repressing athletes as well as kind of the role of the student athlete and I was kind of thinking this on different sort of levels. I'm from New York City, it's the most segregated school system in the country and there's thousands and thousands of black and Latinx students that have no access to sports teams in their schools at all. You don't have the opportunity for after school clubs. In my school, like, I didn't have a gym. They called it like a dance studio. It was like a room with a mirror. 
<laughs> and that's our, our like physical education, right? So there's the question of like in schools, the lack of access to sports and athletics, mm -hmm. and then on a different level, then and often more at the university level, but also at the high school level, and even middle school level of then like the control over student athletes. And now you're controlling their financial aid, their grades, their schooling, and all these other things. And how I think that that's kind of where the issue starts. So yeah, just the question of like, what is the role of the school and how can we be changing that? And how can student athletes be changing that for non-student athletes? My question really is about, you know, the idea of the athlete activist and also I guess how that bumps up against like identity politics you know I'm thinking of Serena Williams I think we all are we are yes <laughs> we are all thinking about Serena like I'm not I'm like one of the casual sports fans like the the middle group right I just know that I love to watch her play and when I see her twirling on the court I feel like I'm twirling on a court you know mm -hmm. like it's really a beautiful thing to see her just be so great and to have reached the levels that she has but at the end of the day, like when she has retired, she's gonna be a venture capitalist, you know? So like, how do you really, how do you make sense of that? You know, the fact that, yeah, she's a black woman. She is like busting down all kinds of doors. You know, representation does matter. And she's also going to be a venture capitalist. She's going to be working as one of the ruling class. So um, yeah, I wanna get your thoughts on that. Mm. So last year, the English Premier League decided to do some sort of like queer inclusion campaign or something like that that they called it where they had folks wear um, rainbow laces on their cleats obviously serious limitations there but um Mohammed Abutreka the same person that you sort of mm. give an example about used a pretty big platform on television to um actively sort of campaign against that and mm -hmm. also urged Muslim players not to partake. Mohammed Abutrik is Egyptian, heavily followed. Queer folks in Egypt are a heavily persecuted, mm -hmm. heavily scapegoated community. So I guess my questions are, one, I went to a talk about elite capture of identity politics yesterday. Mm -hmm. How do we see that at play in terms of rainbow leases, as if mm -hmm. that liberates anybody? But also, the contradictions of someone like Abutrik, who played such a progressive role in the context of the revolution, playing such a reactionary role in that moment. Uh, thanks, y'all. Great question. I'm glad the Tour de France has come up a couple times. I'm a big cycling fan. Cycling is a really weird sport in that the trade teams are all named after their corporate sponsors. It's an interesting example of sport washing because increasingly you have nation states acting as corporate sponsors. So you have literally a, a Team UAE Emirates team Bahrain victorious um, but you know I wanted to ask a question about sort of rank and file players unions so in cycling there's a long-standing uh, riders union called the CPA and a couple of years ago riders recognized that this union was not really serving their interests it had a voting system that was totally rigged to favor basically management and they formed uh, an entire counter union called the riders union and I think that these stories are really, they're really educational uh, to talk about what unions can do, how they should be functioning, and, and essentially the rank and file strategy. And I'm wondering um, what the barrier is to seeing more stories, because I'm sure that there are analogs in, in lots of other sports as well. So, because uh, it strikes me that seeing stories about players 
being more radical in their, in their labor formations is, is highly educational for mm -hmm. everyone. So just, just a couple of things. Uh, I'll just try to run through some of it. You know, it, it's interesting, like this is such a provocative, terrific question about Serena, um, because Serena has meant so much to so many. And she hasn't just been what I would call a representative athlete, like, oh, a, a black woman in tennis, you know, that gives me hope. She's, she's also been somebody who has spoken out on issues, racism, sexism, being a black woman in this country. Um, I mean, the fact that she almost died in childbirth and she used that opportunity to speak about um, mortality levels of, of poor black women. I mean, so that to me is the question. My, my guide for this is Serena going to become a venture capitalist? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we live in a capitalist society and capitalism sucks and people get slotted into these positions and when you have that kind of wealth and honestly that kind of clout and Q rating, that's what they're going to slot you into. Uh, to me, it becomes a question, though, is will Serena, going forward, follow what I would describe as the Jackie Robinson path, who always said, his, what he would always say is, people always ask me if I had it made because I'm successful. Well, I'm more interested in how the masses of the people are doing rather than the success of one individual. When he said that, he, he said other stuff, too, like, I'm a, like, no matter how successful I ever get, I'm a black man in this country whether it's 1919, whether it's 1947, whether it's 1973, I will not stand for the flag. That is not my flag because I am a black man in America and I do not have it made. And it's always this, this push to the collective. You know, you think of what Eugene Debs said about when I rise, it's going to be with the ranks, not from the ranks. And we have to be very careful to not confuse individual representation with collective progress. And so what I want to see from Serena, what I, what I hope to see, what I hope to write about, is that she always keeps her foot in, in the question of collective pro progress so we can continue to be inspired by everything that she does represent and everything that she's spoken for. So I guess what I'm saying is that we need to really be politically assessing what people are doing and have a set of independent politics so we're not bound to any of these people. You know, it's like, oh, I'm in the Serena party, I can't say you know, it's like, no, you, you got to be able to be independent from that. And that, it's the same answer about Abu Treka. I should have mentioned that. I knew about that story. It's bitterly disappointing that he did that. It does raise the question, though, of the rainbow flag thing. And I, I wrote about this when um, a couple of players on the Marlins, for right-wing homophobic reasons, were like, well, everybody's wearing a rainbow. We're not going to wear the rainbow. And I wrote a column where I was like, well, maybe there's a problem with making it corporate and compulsory for people to wear the rainbow. Maybe it should be a situation where the players who actually do give a damn about fighting homophobia wear the rainbow and the people who don't need to explain themselves. Like, why can't we do it that way in a way that actually gives the players, AKA the workers, some agency and it's not branding because you're obsessed with the pink economy or the pink dollar or whatever the hell they're saying in marketing rooms on Madison Avenue. So, you know, I'm against corporate sin washing, which is what I would refer, I refer to it as, because these corporations are racist, sexist, homophobic, and then they say, like, oh, but we wear a rainbow. Um, so, yeah, so Abu Treka to me is, is absolutely horrific for, for being the voice of that right-wing approach, but I think if you stopped the corporate imposition of some of the, the, the branding, the social justice branding, I think what you would see is actually more players step up so I'm just going to stop there. I'm sorry. All right, wait, one more last thing. 
because it's it, uh, the theme of this talk is that capitalism ruins everything. Um, and what my man Miles from Seattle was just asking about, about what he's really asking about is the breaking of the tradition of black Americans in baseball, which is a long, beautiful, incredible tradition that runs through Jackie Robinson, Hank Aaron, Willie Mays, and somebody who I spent a decade defending, Barry Bonds. And why has that tradition been broken? The number one reason why it's been broken is about globalization and neoliberalism. I mean, it was found it's much cheaper to build baseball academies in Venezuela and the Dominican Republic. They sign kids for a couple of grand if they don't make the majors by 18, which is over 90% of them. They're thrown right onto the scrap heap and left to figure out what else to do with their lives. It's horrifically exploitative, particularly in a sport like baseball, because think about it. You want to find that one player who's really good. It's not like basketball where somebody can just do drills in a gym or football where someone can lift weights. You need like 20 other people to see if that one person is major league worthy. Well, what happens to the other 19 people who are there for that? That's, so so th there's that level of globalization. And then there's the effort of what we need uh, to be able to have baseball in our cities. That requires infrastructure. That requires parents with jobs that have leisure time. You know, that requires a city community so kids can actually get together and play stickball and things in the street. But we live in an era of of the suburbanization of poverty in the United States and the sprawling of people of color in too many communities to the point of which getting together for a sport as collective as baseball or making sure that the Boys and Girls Club is funded so there can be a team, I mean, those things have just been gutted and hollowed out, which is actually one of my arguments in the Kaepernick effect about why it's totally legitimate to protest at these publicly funded stadiums because in far too many communities, Everything's been hollowed out. You know, the, the things that our parents grew up with, the Elks Club, you know, the bowling league, like these things, like we're so atomized, these things have been destroyed. And in a lot of communities, a small town in Ohio, let's say, the stadium is the only place where people gather collectively on a Friday night or on a Saturday. And so it should also, it demands itself to be a place where civic action is expressed as well. There's so many good questions. First and foremost, someone asked this question about like, is there sports, can any sports be like anti-business? Can it be operated anti in a way that's not just about the push for profit? And you know, at, at the macro level, I mean, we gotta realize that sports as a business is, is bigger than US Steel. Uh, it's by, by a pretty huge margin. Uh, you have the professionalization, not just obviously of what we all watch and imbibe in the Super Bowl and all the rest of it, but youth sports is hyper-professionalized. Youth sports is a for-profit endeavor. Youth sports has been brutal to the working class of this country. There's even a book that's really good called um, The Most Expensive Game in Town. And it's about how working class and poor families sacrifice for their kids to play youth sports. Because it's not that poor kids aren't playing, it's that their parents are undergoing incredible, incredible efforts so they can play. And, but usually, and I'll get to this in a little bit, but usually that only happens, unfortunately, when the child shows some talent and they think that child could at the very least generate a scholarship, if not professional riches. I mean, it's the equivalent of, you know, your child becoming like a lottery ticket really, when you think about the chances of actually doing it. It's a, it's a tragic set of affairs, but when you're, you're poor, you work with what you got. And 
One of the things that goes up against is when I'm going to talk about what sports should look like in a socialist society, I'm not going to talk about that right yet, but one of the fundamental parts of it has to be universal play and breaking off this idea that says only if you're good do you get to play because sports should be about fun. It should be about making friends. It should be about leisure. It should be about joy. And when we have it broken down to, okay, people who are super fit and super skilled, you're the only ones who get to do it. And the rest of us get to watch. Whew, that's not only um, ugly and, and hyper authoritarian in itself and vertically organized, uh, but you know, it, it's also horrible uh, message that it sends the kids in terms of the pressure that it puts on them. You know, one of the statistics that boggles my mind is that, you know, 70% of kids quit youth sports by the time they're 13. 70%. Why are they quitting at 13, especially when, as a teenager, it can be so helpful to have this outlet to play. And the, the number one reasons why they quit is Honestly, it's not that they're not good enough or whatever, but according to the studies, they quit because it's just too much bull by the time you hit 13. In a lot of ways, it's their first act of rebellion is when they say to mom or dad, you know, I'm not doing this anymore because I don't want to drive two hours every day to play on all these games. I'm not willing to do what's demanded of you to be a part of the sports industrial complex, you know, to be part of what is a profit-making endeavor. So I'm just going to keep going down the list here. Um, right-wing athletes. We've got to remember that sports reflect society. So when the right-wing's on the march broadly, you're going to have right-wing athletes who feel like it's their place to, to basically wave the, the brown flag, as it were. Uh, but what you see in sports, which is really interesting, is you traditionally have seen a pretty even split between the way it works is uh, very conservative white male players and uh, black players. Uh, and when it comes to women, it's much more, much more uh, diverse and mixed and much more left and much more liberal on the whole. Although this has been confused recently because the, the anti-trans stuff has made inroads among a minority but still a significant layer of women athletes, which to me is just about laundering fascism through this and trying to cancel trans people writ large as in their existence. And we have to be clear that when they go after trans athletes in sports, that's about a slippery slope about trans existence, not just about athletics, which makes it to me a much bigger question than just than, you know, this kind of like question of like, well, do, do trans girls, uh, is, is there an advantage they have in sports? Like, it's such a bigger question than that. You know, it's, this is about whether or not trans people are gonna be treated, as we say, with full citizenship or not. And lastly, let's talk about what we're fighting for, because the whole talk was about we're living in this horrific, I think, uh, age of sliding reaction. You've got fascist ideas becoming more mainstream. And so what does the athlete do in that situation? Well, the athlete has to resist. But what's the end goal of that resistance? When you actually engage with sports, you're actually helping build the infrastructure and capacity of a society. Because to me, that's what a world worth living in is all about. The ability where we're free to work, where we're free to play, where we're free to love, and our ability to do something successfully is not how we define ourselves, but our ability to actually capture joy is how we measure our lives. Thank you. You were just listening to Dave Zirin on sports and resistance to fascism. 
He spoke at the Socialism 2022 conference in Chicago in September. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We're an independent progressive nonprofit in our 37th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature voices rarely heard in the corporate media, such as Noam Chomsky, Henry Giroux, Arundhati Roy, and Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. And we have a series of programs with Dave Zirin. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To order copies of today's program, Dave Zirin on Sports and Resistance to Fascism, and for Noam Chomsky's latest book, Notes on Resistance, just call us, 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can go online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. Dot O-R-G. We're offering printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program at no charge. Just call us at 1-800-444-1977. Joe Rich is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening.